Hey, I'm Abigail Thompson from Itasca, Texas, and I'm a firefighter, EMT, and marketer. I love listening to Compelled because it encourages me to focus on the bigger picture that God has for our lives and to be reminded again and again that our God is faithful and He's for us. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a podcast with unique stories from the kingdom of God told by the people compelled to live for Him. Last week, our guest was Atticus Carr, a young man who grew up going to church in the Texas Hill Country, but who eventually devoted himself to Hindu mysticism and New Age philosophy. But then one night, for inexplicable reasons, he began reading the Bible, which opened his eyes to the truth. You can hear that entire story by tuning in to last week's episode with Atticus Carr. Today's episode is a little bit different than our usual show because we're going to air one of our exclusive behind the scenes episodes, which are normally reserved only for our paying monthly members. Normally when I sit down with a guest, we'll have a conversation that's usually around two hours long. And it's probably longer than what most of you would like to listen to which is why we edit our regular episodes down to 45 minutes. And then of course we add narration, background music, sound effects, and all the other things that make Compelled a fun show to listen to. But that also means there's a ton of great material that we end up trimming out. Stories, insights, teaching, and more that we normally have to make the hard decision to leave out due to time constraints. But our behind the scenes episodes include all of that material. We still do some slight editing to remove interruptions or bathroom breaks, but for the most part, it's pretty close to the original interview. No narration, no music, just a conversation. And normally, only our compelled monthly members can listen to these special behind-the-scenes episodes. But this week, we want to share a special one with you. The guest we'll be hearing from is Bruce Colley, a faithful husband and a father of 13 children. Oh, and he also happens to have won the NFL Super Bowl twice, playing for the San Francisco 49ers. Before he was saved, Bruce had everything he ever wanted. Women, money, drugs, and fame. Yet he only felt emptiness inside. It was only after Bruce found Christ through the faithful witness of his mom that he experienced true joy and purpose. We aired Bruce's original episode during season one as episode number six. And even now, I still think back to my conversation with Bruce frequently. I was a brand new father and a brand new podcaster, but Bruce was gracious enough to sit down and share his story with me. So that's the behind the scenes conversation you're about to hear right now. And if you like it, you can listen to several more episodes just like this one by becoming a compelled monthly member starting at $10 a month. Not only do you get access to our special behind the scenes episodes, but you also get access to all of our regular episodes one week early. But most importantly, you enable us to continue creating these powerful and compelling stories. To become a monthly member, just visit compelledpodcast.com and click the button at the top that says become a member. Again, that's at compelledpodcast.com. And with that, here's a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll jump into our interview with Bruce Colley. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, For those that aren't familiar with you, can you tell us about yourself? Well, I um, grew up in San Antonio, Texas, Um, kind of a native Texan, Uh, born in Germany. My dad was an army doctor, Uh, 
uh, orthopedic surgeon who um, was stationed at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio and learned to love the hill country and everything Texan. Uh, he was from Georgia. He met my mom in college. She's from South Carolina. And they just really loved San Antonio. So that's where I was raised. And uh, started playing football down there and and got a scholarship to play college football and went from there to the pros and from the pros to Wembley. That's awesome. So tell us about the, I'm, I'm curious, like your, your background growing up as a kid, did you grow up in a Christian household? Very much so. I grew up in a... Um, a household. My dad was raised Methodist. My mom was raised Baptist, and that created a little bit of friction with the uh, doctrinal issues. But uh, they loved Jesus and, and raised us that way. Um, had a great childhood. Uh, there were some bumpy parts. They actually divorced each other right about my freshman year in college, mm. and uh, that were apart three and a half years. Really formative years for me. Um, and then remarried each other. Oh, wow. Which created a little bit of friction with all the things spiritual, all the things emotional. Um, and uh, if it weren't for football and and, uh, and my coaches, I think I probably would have ended up in jail. Really? But uh, I, I came to know the Lord myself. I say this, um, hopefully people will understand what I'm saying, but I was raised more Baptist than anything. And what I heard growing up, <clears throat> from child Baptist camps and retreats was once saved, always saved. And so I, at 13, faithfully said the prayer at the front of the church and got embarrassed, introduced, and then baptized on Wednesday night. And it was like a finish line. And so, um, excuse me. So I uh, actually um, thought that that was it. That was all I had to do. Kind of like fire shears from hell kind of thing. Yeah. And so I did that. And I um, said that prayer and then kind of lived like I wanted to live. And it, it coincided with a really uh, painful time for my parents' divorce and two houses a couple miles apart, get mad at one, move to the other. Oh, really? And, uh, of course, you know, did everything you're, you're not supposed to do, but always rationalized it because I'd already said the prayer. So, like, when I slept with somebody or got in a fight or did something wrong, um, I would always point to that date and time, date, time, place. Yeah. And uh, the fact that I was saved, um, but never never knew the Lord. And, and it all, you know, through my process of growing through high school and college, um, full scholarship, All-American, uh, drafted by the Super Bowl champion, San Francisco 49ers. They won the Super Bowl in January of 85, and I was drafted in April with uh, some guy named Jerry Rice. and uh, Jerry Rice. Well, Jerry Rice went to there, went to the 49ers, and out of uh, six draft picks, there was a, they only kept two of us. That was Jerry and me. And, um, and what number pick were you? I was, uh, I was fifth round. I was third pick, fifth round. Um, there was a running back from Alabama that was picked in the third round, and he didn't make it. And then we had a sixth, and I think an eighth, and an eleventh or something. And those guys didn't make it either. Um, so when Jerry Rice and I see each other, we say 85 and still alive to this day, which is kind of funny because uh, for Jerry Rice to get cut, that, that would have been really funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the process of, of going through the making the pros and then playing my first five years and just climbing the ladder success, um, but living in the world. 
Yeah. And uh, if anybody ever asked me if I was a Christian, I would point back to that time, date, and place at 13. And, and uh, boy, I was in. And yet I wasn't living a victorious life, even though I had all the stuff. And I, that's what I compare it to. Um, you know, fill in a void. You've heard it before, a hole in your heart. Yeah. And yeah. I filled it with everything. Did you did you have like a, a void in your heart? Like, did I, you feel you that? You know, it's really funny. I, I the void that I had was was uh, I needed to uh, do something next. Like, um, all right, you got a full scholarship. What are you gonna do now? Well, you got to make all conference. Well, you okay? You make all conference. What are you gonna do now? You make all American. Well, if you make all American, what are you gonna do now? Well, I gotta get drafted. So I kept checking the boxes off. You know, buy your first house, buy your first car, buy, get, you know, sleep with how many women? You know, and I think there's a lot of people out there that um, are experiencing this, this brand of Christianity, which unfortunately, um, in my, my humble opinion, is not Christianity. And what happened with me was I, I, I got to the very top of my world. You know, I had three screws in my ankle, I had a screw in my shoulder busted wrists in college, still broken today. It's called a non-union. But I played my first five years in the NFL, um, basically injured. So I wasn't going to go all pro. I, I had no desire to be, make the Hall of Fame. I wanted to be a starter. I became a starter. started in Super Bowl 24 in the Superdome in front of 100,000 people and 600 million viewers or whatever. And, you know, we won. And so it was after that. It was after that final most huge thing that you can choose as a football player you ask him what would it be it'd be to win the super bowl and be a starter on that team after that um is when it all kind of came crashing down because i realized that no matter what i attained a few months later you know the the parties start wearing down and 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 the the funny thing about the nfl is there's a saying what have you done for me lately you win the Super Bowl in January, February, and then the parties kind of end around March and April. And guess what? Mini camp starts in May. And then what do you got to do? You go back to training camp. And what do you got to do? You got to do it all over again. Yeah. And that's the same thing in life, whether it's a sex or whether it's drugs or whether it's alcohol or whether it's, it's the next high, it's the next victory, uh, you know, a worldly thing. And it never brings life. Even though that's what the world says is life, it's not life. Yeah, and so I that all came to to um, you know a head, if you will, in training camp in 1990, and uh, I'm getting ready to start a right guard. Uh, you know, coming back, I still got to fight for my position, but you know I'm getting ready to make in today's dollars about six hundred thousand dollars in six months, um, and yet even football was empty, and that's when you know I got hit in the face because. Always for twenty-something years, football every fall, every fall, every fall. Started at YMCA in San Antonio with Angelo Drosis, the owner of the Spurs, was my first football coach. Wow, the original owner. And so football was always there, and yet in 1990, in August or actually July, when we started, um, football was empty. Football was empty. So that um, that ended up making me really reflect and. It was interesting because I went back to a dorm room in the morning after morning practice and I picked up a landline. We didn't have cell phones back then. We had car phones. Um, I had one in my car, but I was actually in the dorm room and I called my mom back in San Antonio 
And I told her, I said, Mom, I'm going to quit the 49ers and come home. And this is after winning the Super Bowl twice. This is 1990, after winning the Super Bowl twice, getting ready to make $600,000 in the next six months. All I got to do is, or actually four months, all I got to do is play football. And yet, I called her and I said, I said, I'm going to quit the 49ers and come home. And, you know, it's really interesting. My mom loved Jesus. She was a real live live it Christian. Um, I used to, my mom and dad would come out. You know, of course, they were remarried back then. And um, I'd pick them up in limos. They got treated like royalty. They'd sit in the, the press box with Eddie DeBartolo. You know, they'd ride up the elevator with him. Yeah. Um, so my mom had a had a real reason for me to want to keep playing. And, and yet she didn't miss a beat when I said, Mom, I'm going to quit. She just said to me, Son, what are you going to do with your life? And it, I, at that moment is the first moment I ever realized that I had all the stuff, but I had no life. Hmm. And then her next question was, do you have a Bible? Wow. And I remember my jaw hitting the floor and it's like this little voice inside my head was saying, you know, you've been saying, you know, me, you've been saying, you've been a, a, a child of mine since you were 13, but you've never read the Bible unless someone handed it to me in a, Bible study or something or campus life meeting, you yeah. know, I'd read it, you know, but I never really read the Bible. And so words were spoken and she said, well, do you have that backpack you came home with this summer? And over on the floor was a, a backpack that I had gone home with. And my mom was always giving me tapes. She was always giving me these little cassette tapes back then, right? With yeah. sermons on them or yeah. music on them. And uh, so <laughs> I just had this vision of in my truck, I'd be in the driveway going back to college and my mom would run out with a new tape and I would take it because if I didn't take it, she'd get mad at me. You yeah. know? So I'd take it and I'm opening up my glove compartment and there's like a 50 of those things in there. <laughs> <laughs> and like when I close it, it would crunch because there's so many of them I had never listened to. I would oh, take man. it, but I would never listen to them. Well, she said, son, do you have that backpack? I said, yes, I do. She goes, well, check the outside zipper. And like walk over there, I unzipped it. And inside was this little red leather psalm book. And I came back to the phone, I opened up the front cover, and in my mom's handwriting on the inside, it said to Bruce, I love you, mom, Sher Hills Baptist Church, 1967. She had given me that book when I was five years old. Oh man. And it's the first time I ever opened it. Oh, I want to tell you something. I was teed up. God God had the driver. <laughs> he whacked me so hard. I mean, I was a 300 and what, five pounds, six, six. I'm babbling like a little baby with my mom on the phone. I think she prayed for me. And uh, she said, read it. And I, that's the first, and I hung up the phone. It's the first time I ever like read the scriptures and that Psalm one I've got written on my heart today. And I, I just could, I, I was, it was me. I was the one you know, who was the wicked in that Psalm. I was the one who was, oh, man. you know, all that, all that came crashing down. Well, they, uh, we had a, we had a game that weekend and they flew out. I started in a preseason game and, um, she brought me a Bible, my very first Bible. And it was a, a new American standard. And man, I, I, I didn't, I couldn't stop reading it. And that's what happened. And then two weeks later, the 49ers fired me and shipped me off to the Philadelphia Eagles. They fired, they, they traded they, they, you off. Well, basically. no, they actually waved me, which means you go on a wire and then all the other teams ha can claim you under your old contract. Well, yeah. the Eagles who we had played the season before and uh, beat them in the fourth quarter, they, you know, they knew who I was. So they claimed me and I had to get on an airplane and 
the walk of shame where you walk through the locker room, you know, and uh, it's terrible. Oh man. And uh, it's like, God was just hammering me <laughs> with, uh, you know, here, I, I'm, I'm all you got, buddy. And so wow. I'm, I'm on this airplane, reading my Bible. I get to Philadelphia. You know, when I got to the 49ers, they picked me up in a limo. Jerry Rice and I got, were together at baggage claim. We rode in together. We had a press conference together. I mean, there's pictures all over the internet of me and Jerry standing there holding our jerseys. And so they treat us like royalty. When I got fired, I got picked up at the Philadelphia airport by the baggage, you know, the equipment manager in a 72 <laughs> Impala. And of course, it's the first week of September. It's like 100 degrees. Oh, man. And uh, there's a sewer plant right by the Philadelphia airport. Oh, in the classic. And, dude, it had the, I had no AC. And we're driving. I'm like, I have come <gasps> to hell. I am. I, we're driving on the on the Highway 95 and the sewer smell and the sweat. And I'm thinking, all I got is you, Lord, you know. And, yeah. And, um, so I get to the locker room and I walk in and there's a guy named Matt Darwin who was an offensive lineman at A&M. And he was an offensive lineman for the Eagles. And he was sitting in front of his locker reading his Bible at 730 in the morning. Oh, wow. And so I sit down, we start reading Bibles. Yeah, so he's, we hit it off te from Texas. I mean, great guy. Um, a few minutes later, Reggie White comes walking in sees the Bibles, we're talking about Jesus. And I, I, I really don't even know what to say. They, I mean, I th they think I'm some Christian. I'm like two weeks out of the box. You know, I'd, you know, I'd gotten on the floor of that dorm room at the 49ers and started over. I just, you know, re, yeah. whatever, what, I've had pastors say rededicated. I really don't care. All I know is that um, when I got to Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus talks about on judgment day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not? do miracles in your name, yeah. cast out demons in your name. And yet Jesus is going to look at them and say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. That was going to be me. Yeah. And so that, that's what I, you know, ended up being able to tell those guys. And, and uh, then Reggie kind of took me under his wing and did a lot of discipleship with me. And in the saunas, when we'd sit there and sweat and make weight, we'd be talking about, you know, I told him about, I was looking for a wife now because I was done with sleeping around. I was done done with the strippers, done with the drugs, done with the, you know, well, the alcohol was still there a little bit. It's a funny story behind that. I was sitting at a Hilton hotel, which is kind of, was well, used to be out in the parking lot of the veteran stadium, the old stadium, they blew it up. Yeah. But, um, my first night there, um, get done practice and, uh, I go to the, <laughs> I go to the bar and I, you know, I'm on autopilot, right? Yeah. Order, order a drink, right? pull out my Bible. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm reading my Bible at the bar. Yeah. And the patrons, like, there's people like start moving away. <laughs> it's like, it's like I smell bad or something, wow. which is, I have this memory of like, what's wrong with these people? And I, I thought it was totally normal to read a Bible on the bar. And they're yeah. like, no, that's weird, man. That's weird. <laughs> so that, that, uh, started the trek of really getting real and, uh, started doing street ministry with Reggie White on Fridays. We'd buy pizzas and hand them out and he preach wow. and um and through that process i met my wife holly wow holly's from pennsylvania and um she was a model and uh you met her on the street one night or i met her through another football player i yeah. was like i didn't mean like on the street no, no, not no, like no, that no, context no no, but... no no i met her i met her as a blind date kind of a thing and and we were told about each other and and uh so um yeah so we we met and then uh Within six weeks, we were engaged, and within four weeks, we were married. Oh, wow. And I brought her back to Texas, and uh, that all happened here right 
about 12 miles from here at Canyon Lake. We got married. That's amazing. And where, yeah. where was Holly spiritually when you met her? Interesting. Her testimony is similar to mine. She was raised Lutheran. Um, and at 13, they do a confirmation ceremony. And mm-hmm. They give them a Bible. Mm-hmm. And then she put it on the shelf. And, uh, yep. And so she, her, her, you know, her testimony, if you will, was very similar to mine in that she was raised by great parents, raised with, you know, great morals, but she bought into the world stuff, sex, you know, she was a victim of abortion. I mean, she's, she's got her own testimony and it's really interesting because, uh, one of the first things I invited her to do, um, after we had gone out to eat at Fuddruckers, of course, a Texas company, I had to get a burger at <laughs> Good idea. There. And then uh, I took her in an airplane the next day because I'm a pilot. So I had to make sure she liked flying because if she didn't like flying, it was going to really be trouble. And uh, and then uh, that Friday, I think, uh, that was the first time that she had ever gone out in the streets and do ministry. Uh, Reggie and I, we had a half days. And so I made a deal with a guy that, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 pizzas. I can't remember how many pizzas, but I had a big truck so I could put them in the back. Yeah. And um, we, I would, Holly and I were handing out slices of pizza. And so she got to see faith in action instead of just with words, you know. And um, so one day uh, I actually uh, had to go to a meeting or something at the stadium and I had my truck. And so she dropped me off. I said, you know, it was a couple hours, three hours later, come pick me up. And so she went driving around and I had those cassette tapes from my mom. Yeah. But I finally started pulling out. And one of them was like the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And and then she put in another one and it was Stephen Curtis Chapman. Yeah. And it was a song called I Will Be Here. And um, so somewhere in the middle of that song, she had to pull over on the side of the road and the Lord just you know, teeter up like that and whack. And she had to repent and receive him again right there, whatever, or, or the first time. And she told me afterwards, you know, that that had happened. And That's so we incredible. kind of started together, you know, I was a couple months ahead of her, but we grew in faith together. And, uh, it's been that way for, like I said, 27 years. That's so. incredible. Yeah. And that's amazing that your mom's cassette tapes, you know, that she was passing to you and that you had just kind of disregarded for so long, ended up playing an instrumental role in the Holly's conversion. That's and that would be a message I would send out to every mom, dad, granddad, grandma, aunt, you know, uncle, uh, sister, brother. Never, never, never give up. Never quit. Keep giving those tapes you don't have cassettes anymore, but keep sending the iPods or whatever they call yeah, them or, the, yeah. or the, the music link or keep doing it because uh, when it comes time, that will be used. It's seeds. You're, you're putting seeds in the ground. You're watering. You're fertilizing. You're doing something. Yeah. Don't ever quit. Yeah. So you guys were married, uh, it sounds like, really fast. Really fast. Who, uh, got, who was in your wedding? Uh, buddy of mine still lives here in Wimberley, Jim Kothman, he and my dad, you know, and, and, um, uh, we, she had her sister and, um, it was a real small wedding. Only had about 40 guests. Yeah. Um, Bill Miller's barbecue catered it. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I saved her dad a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you would know all about this now being a a dad of many children yes. and looking at weddings in the future now. Well, I haven't had a daughter wedding yet. So I, so technically I haven't had to, uh, haven't had to pay for one yet, but yeah. we, we had one on our ranch. We've got a little property, big oak trees. That was Branson and, uh, and my daughter-in-law Peyton. 
And then we did a wedding up in Nashville for my son Jensen and Clara. They were married uh, just four or five months ago. That's awesome. Yeah, and that was done. Her her dad took care of that. So I'm, I'm going to have seven seven weddings to do oh, for my man. daughters. So I've got six sons, seven daughters. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, let's let's pick up back where you were saying that you guys got married, and at this point, you're still living in Philadelphia. You're still playing for the Philadelphia Eagles. Yes. Tell us what happened next. Well, in '91 um, uh, was my second season. I was starting guard, and then we had some trouble in the offensive line. Uh, I, I I played all preseason at right tackle. They had a first round draft choice that that held out. Guy by the name of Anton Davis. He signed the first week, so then they, they were like, they had to give him the job because they were paying him millions of dollars. So they moved me to starting left guard, even though I hadn't played in left guard in all five preseason games, which was crazy. And it was it, the left side was really awkward for me, so my play wasn't the greatest, but um, ended up getting hurt um, against Tampa Bay, tore my medial collateral ligament, Ouch. and sat out for the rest of the season. And then the Philadelphia Eagles made a bunch of changes, and uh, they they waved me at that spring. And Holly and I were thinking, uh, what are we going to do? So we stayed at our house in San Antonio, and then I got a call from the 49ers to come back, and uh, which was really a blessing because Holly got to be a 49er wife, and and be to go to the 49er wife's things. And is that a unique experience? Tell well, us about this. Well, you know. <clears throat> The, the pre-Holly life that I had was all 49ers, Super Bowls, you know, all that stuff. And um, Holly was all Philadelphia. Yeah. But it was like a gift from God that he allowed her to go back with me. And I was actually playing again. I was in the locker room. She got to go to the game and sit with the wives. And she got to experience all of that, even for just a few weeks. Yeah. And then... Um, Bob McKittrick, our offensive line coach, asked me if I wanted to come back and, and keep playing. And I was done. I mean, I really was. I And, and, and Holly and I prayed about it, and, and we were ready to start our family. We were ready, you know, because the whole birth control thing was something that we had gone through when we got married. Um, she was modeling, <clears throat> and she was obviously on the pill because, you know, she was living the life of, in the world. And uh, And then when she got saved... We actually went to a, um, a ministry event um, down in Baltimore, a street event with Reggie White, and a, and a former player for the Eagles by the name of Jack Klotz, hmm. um, big, bigger than me. I mean, he was like 330 at that time. I mean, he's probably 6'4", big guy. Yeah. Um, he, he comes up to me, and he's, I mean, he's a big guy, and he's got tears running down his face. He's like, can you, Holly, come to my office? And I'm like, sure. You know, so Holly and I went in there and we sat down and he gets behind his desk and he pulls out a piece of paper and he's like, I've been up all night. God's just hammering me and I'm supposed to give you this. And, you know, we'd only been married since uh, February and this is uh, like August. And uh, he hands us this piece of paper and um, it's the title of the paper was Why Are Christians on Birth Control? And it was really interesting. It was, it was written by a guy. I, I, I used to have his name memorized. Holly's got it. Um, and it was really well done because it wasn't a Catholic thing. It wasn't a religious thing. It, 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 was, it, was, it was religious in that it basically went through and talked about what God says about children in the Bible. 
and what society says about children. And of course, we've lived it now, yeah. you know, having so many children, but it's true. You know, people go, don't you have TV? Uh, don't you know what causes that? Oh, do you ever let her out of the bedroom? You know, it's all yeah. that crazy stuff instead of, wow, what a blessing. Wow, yeah. what a treasure. Wow, what a, you know. And so that's what we're living right today is those choices that we made at that time. And we threw birth control away that night, like the next morning. It was like the guy was listening to our pillow talk because we had been talking about birth control for at least six weeks before that. Yeah. And uh, struggling with, well, how, and, and she asked a bunch of the players' wives, how do you do it? How do you do it? Well, well, you got to get pregnant in, you know, like July. So you have the baby in January or whatever the month is because the off season is the only time your husband's going to get to play with a baby. So you never want to have it at the beginning of the season because then he'll never see it. And so Holly and I are trying to figure out, all right, how do you get, how do you do this again? What's that, what's that cycle? Or how, when do you get off the pill to be able to do? And so we just, we said, forget it. And we threw it away. And within a couple months we were pregnant. Which yeah. It was like, yeah. Yeah. And um, three and a half months in, we lose it. Oh man. Yeah. First miscarriage. And I will never forget, I was in the operating room when they did that DNC thing, whatever they call it. And um, after that, I was done. And I went in the recovery room. Holly was waking up from the anesthesia. And uh, she was real groggy. And I couldn't wait to tell her, hey, we're, I'm not going through that again, babe. We're, good, we're getting back on this pill thing until we figure this thing out. And she, she sat up and she took my face in her hands. And she said, Bruce, let's don't give up on God. Mm. And I was like, wow. I'm not the one laying there, had to go through that procedure. And here she is telling me not to give up on God. So we prayed about it and that's it. We never ever looked at it again. And we just said, Lord, give us what we're supposed to have. And we read Psalm 127 over every baby and talk about children or gift and reward. Yeah. So, yeah. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. 
and their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Yeah, so she got to be a 49er wife in, in 92. That was the end of the season, uh, January of 93. Beat by the Cowboys. Came back to Texas. Got in the hunt for some land. Uh, we had an airplane. I bought a Cessna 210, six-seater, turbocharged, nice, fast, cross-country. We flew it to the Bahamas, Mexico, just Holly and I. That's San great. Francisco, um, New York, Philly. Visiting family, you know, taking my parents to the Bahamas. We, we had a blast in that airplane. But uh, my passion was to, to fly for a living, maybe work for Southwest Airlines. As an airline pilot? As an airline pilot. Commercial? That was, that, yep. I was getting all my ratings and um, training in the airplane, instrument, multi-engine. I was going for the ATP. I already had my commercial. Um, but I needed a, I always had a dream to have a runway on my place, you know, like have a hangar. Yeah. Where I come out of the house, go in the hangar, get in the airplane and go. And so we made that happen here in Wembley. We found a piece of land around the river. Put an airport in. It was called Restoration Ranch. Still on the VFR maps. Um, Three thousand feet long, hundred feet wide. Put a hangar up and started having babies. And uh, first baby in '93, second '94, third '95, fourth '96, fifth '97, sixth '98. Yeah, our first. Uh, we had our third child before the oldest turned two. Oh my goodness! Um, but before everybody out there goes crazy. Uh, uh, Holly's called, we call them her, her a Norwegian microwave. Uh, her <laughs> mom, her sister, and Holly, we, they all have them in like 36, 37 weeks. 40 weeks is normal, you know, 39 to 40. Yeah. And so, um, every, she all, had every, them at all three weeks early. So it, every baby we were catching up three weeks. And you didn't induce or anything? No, no, no. Didn't induce. Well, I think one, one or two we had to induce just because it was her water had already broken and, yeah. and things weren't progressing. But yeah. we never induced to have the baby, no. Yeah. No. Did you have the babies at a hospital or at home? We did. We did. We were right here at local hospital right down the road, 12 miles from our house. Um, yeah, we'd get an extra, I would get an extra day, you know, we'd pay for it. Yeah. Paid cash for all our babies. And uh, we made a little vacation for Holly and I. Visitors would come in, but then they'd leave. Because Holly's the kind of woman that if uh, if she, the house was dirty and she was having visitors come, she'd want to get up and start yeah. vacuuming the floor or something. I was yeah. like, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. So we made a little vacation. Every baby, we had two days at the hospital together. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. sure the hospital staff are like, oh, yeah, it's them again. Oh, absolutely. It's about we that still, time of year now. We still see them. We see them in town. Oh, Holly. They come say hello. And, yeah, That's we great. great. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So how many kids do you have now? 13. 13. 13 and what's children. their spread of years? Uh, 25 to 9. 25 to 9. 24 to 9. And then Devin's going to be 25. So That's crazy. 
That's crazy. What a blessing. What a blessing. So did, did you pursue then commercial uh, flying? I, I did, um, but as we, that started to come to fruition, I started to research more what that took. And at the time we were having a child a year, um, I had taken the first year kind of off because you get a, a severance pay from the NFL for, you know, kind of till I figured out what I was doing. And in that time, I'd worked on our land. We had um, 56 acres right there on the river with swimming swimming hole, the whole nine yards. And um, I started clearing. I bought a tractor and started clearing the land. And I had a neighbor come down and say, hey, you know, you did pretty good. Why don't you come help me out, you know, clear my land. I'm sure they're like, yeah, yeah, football guy. Yeah, I could use him yeah. out there. So, yeah, so I did. And, and, you know, the next thing you know, Holly's bringing me lunch on the hood of the truck. And I'm out there in the dirt and bleeding a little bit, kind of like office lineman stuff, you know. And, yeah. and uh, t- took home a lot of money. I mean, it was a good, good paycheck at the end of the week. And I just looked at her. I said, this is pretty fun. And uh, this is pretty cool. So we actually started a construction company and did uh, heavy equipment excavation work for uh, about 10, 11, 12 years. Wow. And um, we sold that all that in, back in 2005, 2006. And, um, and went to another adventure, restaurant business, and actually went on the road for a year in our motor home and did ministry with a prison ministry. Tell us about that. Um, it's, a, it's Bill Glass. It's called Behind the Walls now. Back then it was Champions for Life. Uh, same Bill Glass that played for the Cleveland Browns with uh, Jim Brown and the Hall of Famers. Um, and it's a it's a great ministry that uh, is based out of Dallas, and the, the it's a little bit of a different ministry in that it's everybody thinks it's about the inmates, everybody thinks it's about the uh, platform guests or the guys like me that have Super Bowl rings or the baseball guys or the soccer guys. We've got Tina Walinda from the Flying Walinda family circus act that he'll put up a high wire in the yard. I mean. We got the Creviers who do basketball half times at NBA shows. They spend twelve basketballs, twenty basketballs, oh, thirty man. basketballs. They put on a show, and and everybody thinks it's all about that. It's not. It's what it's really about is about the churches in the local area sending their members to actually for the very first time go into a prison, and not only that, for but for the very first time actually share their faith one on one, and it's very structured. And what ends up happening is, is um, the morning of the first rookie meeting, you got these men, women, uh, younger people who are terrified. First of all, they're terrified that they're going into prison. Yeah. Second of all, they're terrified that they're going to actually have to share their faith because they've been Christians for years, but they've never actually led someone through the prayer of repentance and belief in the resurrection. And so you, they get trained in that. And what's really the most awesome experience is the pep rally, we call it, afterwards, when everybody comes in from being on the yards for six hours and we have a barbecue or you know sandwiches or whatever that night and you pass a microphone around and you got people who are lit up for Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> it's really awesome. awesome. So it's, yeah, Bill Glass behind the walls. It's a great ministry. That's awesome. And so you took your whole family. How many kids did you have at that point? We had 11 at that time. 11. Uh, yeah, we, we had a big Prevo entertainer coach. We still have it. It has 12 bunk beds in it and a big bed in the back for Holly and I. And, and it, uh, yeah, we, we took it 70-something thousand miles in 2006, coast to coast. Um, yeah, it, it was all precipitated by, uh, by the construction company. And uh, my superintendent died. 
Mm. Like he lived on our ranch, actually died in the cabin. Oh man. And, um, yeah, I actually named my son, my last son, Dennison is named after Dennis DeBoer. Uh, it's a whole story of, wow. Talk about a story. Tell us, we have time. Um, Well, you know, the, uh, Holly and I have always honored somebody with the names of our children. Um, the first couple were names that we just liked, but then we always put in a middle name after one of her, her parents or my parents, you know, Devin, Carol, Carol, Mark is Holly's mom. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Jordan Stokes, Stokes was my mom's maiden name. Um, Jensen Mark, uh, Bob Mark is Holly's dad. Um, Denton Lamar, Lamar Collie was my father, the orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. So we, on down the line is a name and, and there's some, some story behind the name. So uh, the first name could be either something that we're honoring by or it could be a name that we like um but uh we we you know holly and i when you when you have that many children you find names on uh, sound of music you know the credits that go by one of them came from there <laughs> <laughs> one of them was a sign cameron came from a sign on the highway on 35 oh wow. you know we just uh, it was really interesting we'd see it and like, that's it that's it you know we just had fun with it but um when my daughter dalton uh, when Holly's water broke, um, we were actually in the bus coming off a trip. I think it was from Houston. And Dennis DeBoer, my superintendent for five, six years in my construction company, was living on our ranch. And he was my right-hand man, like a brother I never had. And um, I said, I called him. I said, Dennis, you got to get in the suburb, in their excursion, which seated 12. We had it custom-made. And um, you got to meet us in San Marcos because we got to go to the hospital. Holly's water broke. Dalton's coming. Or, or, you know, we had two names. We never looked. So we had a guy name and a girl name. And I caught each baby. And I would I would tell Holly who it was. <clears throat> and Dalton's really funny because <clears throat> Dalton was going to be the guy or the girl name. All the other ones, there were two different names, and Holly would know. So Dennis drove out the excursion with the trailer. We put everything from the bus for the kids. Put all ten of my or. Let's see, Dalton's number nine. No, she's number 11. And uh, so we put all the stuff in the in the um, excursion, and I've never in my life let anyone drive besides my mother, father-in-law, or my mom and dad drive our kids. Yeah. That just shows you how much I trusted Dennis. And um, he drove them to my mother and father-in-law's house here in Wimberley. Um, they had moved from Philly to here. Um, so, uh, and Holly and I went and had uh, the baby and, and, and I caught Dalton and I, I, you know, I said, oh, baby, honey, it's Dalton. And Holly said, they're going, Dalton and what, what, what's her, what's the middle name? And I was like, oh, oh it's Dalton and, you know, it was a little girl. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> um, so bring the baby home. Everything's going great. Uh, in May. Uh, we're working at a job site up at the development that we own up at the junction of two highways here in Wembley. And um, it's 7 o'clock in the morning, it's 7.15, it's 7.30. I'm waiting for Dennis because we slept in the bus up there. Dennis doesn't show up. So I drove down here to the ranch and I went in his front door and he was dead on the floor. 39 years old, died of a brain aneurysm. Oh, wow. And um, <clears throat> it knocked the wind out of my sails. He was the kind of guy, we had a commercial job going up in Austin where um, we're running it with a big crew up there, about eight, 10 guys. 
And um, <clears throat> we'd wake up in the morning, he'd get in the truck, and we'd drive the same truck there. No reason to take two trucks, go in the same place. <clears throat> well, we would have a, a little problem or an argument on the job, we'd be throwing rocks at each other, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, okay. really mad. Like we're brothers, basically. And then we got to get in the truck and drive home. We wouldn't speak to each other the whole way home. But as we're pulling in the driveway, Holly would call me on the phone and say, uh, oh, I got meatloaf. Is Dennis coming to supper? I'd say, hang on, Dennis, Holly's got meatloaf. You coming to supper? He'd go like, <laughs> yeah, let me take a shower. Be right there. He'd walk in the door. Everything was fine. Nothing. We didn't bring work home. We didn't bring it in the building. And then next morning he'd get in the van, I mean, get in the truck. Hey man, I'm sorry, me too, I'm sorry. You know, we'd, we'd yeah, you know, yeah. kiss and make up on the way back. And he was just that kind of guy, you know, he was the guy that, you know, we, no matter what happened, we never gave up on each other. And, uh, and when he passed away, I'm gonna tell you, I was, I was leaving, I had to leave extra early then, I had more work to do. Uh, I was leaving before my children woke up and I was coming home after they went to bed. And I, I just looked at Holly probably two months after he passed. He passed May 3rd. And um, I said, uh, I said, that was 1995. I said, uh, I'm done. I'm done. I want to sell it all. I said, Let's, um, this is not what I want to do. And at that time, Bill Glass, it was called Champions for Life back then, they were looking for a new director, and I was in the running for that with, with some other guys, Tully Blanchard and all these great, great people. So I made a deal with them to do 25 weekends in 2006. And um, I, I, meant, I said 95, I meant 2005. So <clears throat> 2006, um, Dennis died in 2005. So about November, we had sold everything, backed out of our contracts we had for the construction company. And we loaded up 11 children in our motor home and took off. And uh, we started, uh, I think, in Dallas with the first weekend with Bill Glass. And we, uh, through that next year, we did uh, 20, 25 or 26 weekends all wow. over the country. And uh, we homeschooled on the road. We did sites. You know, we did all this stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of different reasons we did that. You know, when I was looking for our motor home, it was way back in 2003. And I can't tell you how many people I went to look at a million-dollar Prevo motor home. And... It was the widow who was selling it. And when you met her, she's just this frail woman. And you get the story behind what happened. Oh, my husband, we had millions of dollars. We worked all our lives dreaming of going on the road. And he finally retired. And we only put a thousand miles on it and he passed away. Wow. And I cannot tell you, they're in their 70s, some were in their 80s. That really impacted me. Because I, I looked at Holly after Dennis died, and I said, that ain't going to be us. I said, I'm not doing this thing where we work, 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 and then when we're in our 70s, we finally get in the motor home, like we've always talked about, and, and then God takes me home. I said, that ain't going to happen. I said, let's do this now. Yeah. And so that, that really helped us make that decision. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. I find it intriguing. I find it really interesting, just like all these experiences that you've had and just um, like the breadth and depth of, you know, your career. Uh, and then also just like the way that God has led you. And, um, and just like hearing your story of like, hey, you know, like God does have bigger plans. I think that's just really, um, I don't know, encouraging for me as a young guy to hear this. Don't be afraid. Don't yeah. be afraid to... Um you know, Holly and I said something. I get goosebumps thinking. I need, I need to finish that story about Dennison. Let me get back to that. Yeah. But um, 
we say all the time, we are very wealthy people. We just don't have any money or we just don't have a whole lot of money. Yeah. And you have to let that sink in because God does not care about so many things that we think he cares about that, that we waste our time on and with churches and, and denominational stuff. And I'm not saying churches are wrong or denominations are wrong. I think God allows denominations almost like personalities. You know, I got people in my life that love Jesus, but they're political, you know, their social economic outlook is night and day from me. Yeah. But they love the same Jesus. And yet, obviously, in the culture we're in today, we're, we're losing the ability to have people in your life that you totally disagree with, but you still love. You know, I've got, I've got people that work for me that have different choices in life than me, but I love them. And we still have a relationship, and it's okay. Um, and I think, you know, it, it takes it takes more courage to live your passion than live what you think you're supposed to live, because live what you're supposed to live is easy. You know, um, I told my children, I said, you know, I you, you want to play pro football? That's you. Don't even put that on me. I said, we've got two Super Bowl rings. You can borrow them anytime you want, or you, you're going to own them. When I'm gone, guess what? Y'all got to figure out who's – y'all can pass it around, wear them yeah. every day. I don't care what you do with them. You know, they're awesome. But, you know, my, I, I live my passion. That was football for me. But that's not your passion? Don't do it. I said, if you, and we did. They did high school football, but one of them as big as me and his senior year, he didn't want to play. And so I said, go for it. And he did theater. I wish I could have done theater. Yeah. But back in the 70s, if I told my coach I didn't do theater, <laughs> it would not have been good. Yeah. It was a different world back then. But, um, but oh, I wanted to get back to Denison because I needed to finish that part of the story. You can cut it in. But um, when we went on that trip in 2006, um, we got pregnant again. And so I, I remember we were, I don't know, three or four months into it when you finally start, you know, telling people that you're pregnant. Yeah. And um, I, I looked at Holly one day and I said, honey, I really want to honor Dennis for what he was in my life. I'd like to name, I think, I think a name, if it's a little boy, it could be Dennison, Dennis's son. Mm. I said, it'll be a part of Dennison. And because me and my boys were letting our hair grow out. All of 2006 and 2007, I, I had hair down in my rear end, oh you know, my mid, middle of my back. All my boys had long hair, and they they hated it because we'd be in a men's room at the uh, we'd be in a men's room at the at the urinal, and uh, you see an old man walk in, he'd stop, he'd look at the door, <laughs> look at the urinals, and leave. <laughs> and my boys were like, Dad, they're asking me if I'm a guy or a girl. <laughs> like, oh man! So anyway, we honored Dennis by growing our hair out. Yeah. And I said to Holly, I said, um, if we have a little boy, what do you think about Dennison? You know, Dennis's son. She said, that'd be a great idea, honey. I said, all right. So I said, all right, so what's the little girl name? So we had Jaden, all right. So we pregnancy goes to full term. We go to the hospital, have the baby, and I catch, and of course it's Jaden. So I said, honey, it's Jaden. It's like, yeah, awesome, yay. So. A month goes by, you know, don't touch your wife for a month and all that goes by. And, and so I start back to, you know, we get pregnant again. I said, honey, what do you think about the Denison thing? Is that still, you, you good with that? She goes, absolutely. I said, all right. So we go on, a, we're on the trip and uh, it's February uh, 9th and we're driving along and midnight and whatever. I'm, I'm, Holly's right there. 
get her to help me out here with the details. But um, so things start happening and we're near the hospital. So we pull into the parking lot like three o'clock in the morning and uh, our second oldest daughter, Jordan, or child, she's a girl, Jordan, Holly's walking down the hallway. I'm, 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 I'm moving fast. I'm going to get in first. I got to get to the hospital. Let them know we're here. Yeah. And Holly's walking down the hallway of our motorhome, and Jordan sticks her hand out, real quick from the, the the curtain of her bed, and she says, "Mom, what's going on?" And Holly says, "Yeah, it's happening. Something rumbling down there. We got to go." She says, "Mom, do you know what today is?" And Holly goes, "Well, uh, it, it's it's February 10th." Holly, Jordan goes, "It's Mr. Dennis's birthday." Oh wow. So we go in the hospital. Things happen pretty quick. At like 5.01 a.m. in the morning, I catch a baby. It's a little boy. I say, honey, it's Dennison, Dennison Vernon. Vernon was Holly's grandfather, so we nodded. And so wipe the cheese off and whatever, you know, yeah. clean up the baby, go through all that, put in Holly, starts breastfeeding right away. About 5, I don't know, 5.40 or whatever, I get on the phone, and I call Dennis DeBoer's mom in California. Yeah. She lives in Madeira. <clears throat> and I said, I said, uh, Aunt Karen, I said, our grandma Karen, I said, we just had a little boy and we named him Dennison after Dennis, like Dennis's son. She goes, you know, today's Dennis's birthday. I, I said, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. She goes, what time was the baby born? I said 501. She goes, Dennis John DeBoer was born at 501. Wow. On this date. It's like two years we wow. had this name. And yet God had our son to honor Dennis born the same day at the same time. Wow. Now, wrap your brain around that one. That yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Hey, Holly. I'm good. I'm good. You want to take a seat? Yeah, that, that one, I mean, I usually get emotional and goosebumps, but I was trying, you know, I wanted to tell it in a way I wouldn't do that. But, um, you know, but it's a message because uh, the mathematical possibilities of that for two years to be born on the same day, you've been planning something and to get pregnant and to have the baby come on the same day at the same minute of the day, I, I, I would have to consult a statistician. Yeah. And um, so just remember that Jesus is real. He's there. Uh, Dennis loved J Jesus. I mean, he was he was a widower himself, um, and so I just really give a shout out to, to Christ for that because it really it really encouraged us, you know, that what we've done. I mean, obviously Holly was forty four years yeah. old, and that's an encouragement to women who are out there. The world saying, "Hey, your biological clock at thirty three, it's running out, and all that stupid stupid stuff." It's not. It's not what happens when when you're following Christ. He, he's going to bless you. And, and, uh, and, and bring about what he wants. And he always folds it in where we're a part of what he's doing. Uh, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Tell me about this. Uh, well, well, actually, so how old is Denison now? Denison will be 10 in February. 10. It is, is Denison your last? He is. He is your last. Yep. Wow. That's amazing there too then. Yeah. That's incredible. You had another story I think you were about to tell me just before you wrapped up um, Dennison's story, but I can't remember now. Uh, well, the Dennison story is about Dennis DeBoer. It was about how, how Dalton, and I mean, uh, Dalton was picked up. Uh, when we had Dalton, he picked up the rest of the children, and then we had Jaden, 
and then that all 2006 is when we were uh, on the road, and we uh, we got pregnant with Dennison in 2007 because we had him in February 2008. So, and now Holly was. Got it. Got it. So. What did y'all do after the ministry with Bill Glass? What happened next? Well, we got a call from the IRS that the restaurant tenant that we had had forgotten to pay him about a half million dollars. And, oh, exciting. And th- yeah. So we had to, we actually were in Colorado when we got that call. We were looking for property up there. We were wanting to, uh, we sold the ranch here that we had with the hangar and the runway. And because we figured, you know, God wanted us to do more on the road, maybe even run Bill Glass out of Dallas. And so we were kind of preparing for that. And uh, then that did not, that actually we chose not to pursue that after we been with it for a year. You know how you're just not cut out for something. Sure. You know, there's like your politics. I mean, there was a lot of politics in that. It was like trying to run a church. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just not, I'm way too... Uh, I'm way too blank and blunt. Up and, front. Um, oh, yeah. I'm offensive lineman all the way. Yeah. So um, we chose to uh, go to Colorado, and we got involved with a family there, and it was really going great, and we were looking for some property. And uh, we wanted to, our dream life would be to spend, you know, six months there and then six months down here during the winter uh, in Wimberley and you know, we got the development with the restaurants and there was space on the back of that to build a house. Um, but then that all kind of changed when we got that call from the IRS and we actually had to come back here and put all that money that we we're going to use in property to, to save the restaurants. Um, and, you know, there's a whole big story there, but it, don't need to go into all that. But it, it just ended up being where our children kind of grew up in the restaurant business, which was ended up something that I wouldn't have chosen, but it's been a real blessing. You know, it's not something you make a whole lot of money at, but everybody's got a job and everybody's yeah. got purpose. And uh, the family is uh, basically all the employees we have, we have some helpers. But the ministry we've been able to do because of that restaurant, um, not only to the community, but to the helpers that come in, the, the part-time people that we employ, um, the, the impact for Christ that we've had on them. And then also uh, my son Branson met his wife because she came to work there and saw the family and how that's awesome. Uh, we raise our kids differently. We we uh, we don't do dating. Um, we do coming of age ceremonies when they turn thirteen. Uh, we we don't allow the word teenager to be used in our household because that's a new word that was brought in uh, in our culture here in the United States. Uh, it, it was a verb in the twenties. It became a noun in the thirties. Added to Webster's dictionary in the th- nineteen thirty eight. Um, and it's never been used as a compliment. I mean, if I tell people I have seven teenagers in my house right now, what's what's their next reaction? Oh man, you poor thing. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. If I if I tell them I have seven young adults, they go, "Oh, what? that's pretty cool." And we base it all in scripture. Um, we call the Bible my playbook. So we got it all from the Bible, starting in Genesis two, um, when God created marriage. Uh, when Adam looked at all the animals and couldn't find a helper and God put him to sleep and did the first cloning, took his rib and cloned a woman and handed him to him. And he went, Whoa, man. And (laughs) you know, they had wonderful sex. It was all a gift from God, pre sin, pre, pre uh, manifestation of sin. Sin was always there. But, but we talk about that with our kids and we talk about the fact that when Adam saw Eve, 
he said, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And yet in our culture today, we don't make men and women in our households. We call them teenagers and put them in limbo and send them off to college at 17 and 18 years old and give them a credit card and a dorm room and freedom and, or, you know, and, and, and without fences and they go crazy and get drunk and die at frat parties and yeah. get pregnant and get disease and all the, all the above, you know, and, and, and get indoctrinated with crazy ideas, you know, in, in, in school. Um, and so we chose a different path. We chose homeschooling. We chose uh, coming of age ceremonies. We've got rings. Um, I broke two of them. Uh, I got two more that go on here, but they're at the shop right now. And this represents the six daughters who have turned into women in my household. Okay. I've got one more that's going to fit on there. And then uh, on their wedding day, when I walk them down the aisle, I'll slip one ring off and I'll hand it to her husband. Oh man! And I'll pass her virginity, her first kiss, her heart, and her mind. I'll pass to her husband. Oh man! Uh, if she chooses. She becomes a woman in my household at 13. If she chooses to want to go have sex with somebody or want to date or want to kiss, all she's got to do is come to me and get the ring. And she takes the ring at that time and goes and does what she wants to. So it's always available to them. Uh, at 18, legally in the state of Texas, you can move out of your dad's house. That's always available to them. But so far, all of my daughters have chosen to stay pure and, wow. and to uh, stick with the, with the decision we made as a family. Uh, biblical decision Luke chapter 2 um, there's only three times we know about Jesus's age when he's born in Bethlehem and when he started his public ministry at 30 years old is mentioned but there's one other time a lot of people miss it it's in Luke chapter 2 when uh, he was in the he they went to Jerusalem for the Passover and uh, his parents they were leaving they'd done all their duties they were leaving and his parents thought he was in the caravan and they traveled a full day. And it says the boy Jesus being 12 years old was in the temple talking to the lawyers, but his parents thought he was in the caravan. So they traveled a full day. And at that night when they camped, they couldn't find him. So the caravan kept going and Joseph and Mary had to come back for a full day, traveled back. And then they searched for him for a full day. So three days they haven't seen him. Yeah. They're pissed. Yeah. And uh, you can read a lot into that scripture. I, I make it come alive for my kids because I would be very upset. Oh, yeah. And it says that Mary confronts him in front of the lawyers. She looks at him and she, she says, why have you treated your father and me this way? Joseph is standing there. It's one of the last times we hear about Joseph. And what did Jesus say? Did you not know that I had to be about my father's affairs? Or did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Who's he talking about? He's not talking about Joseph. He's talking about his heavenly father. That's what men do. Men go from thinking about their mom and dad, start thinking about their their mission in life, their passion, their future, their 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 wife, their whatever. And that should happen at about 12, 13. And it's really interesting that the bar mitzvah for you know devout Jews is still held at 13. And I think the bat mitzvahs either 12 or 14 for girls. I can't remember what that one. We, we just said, all right, everybody's 13. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. we don't live under the law anymore. We're free from that. But uh, we just we just chose that age. Uh, and so that's what we do. We have a big ceremony. Um, it's the first time that they profess Jesus of Nazareth as an adult. Um, we believe you can be saved as a child. But uh, your parents are still responsible before God. 
So that's the that's a real mission that, that we need to be about parenting that child. And they're not responsible just as they wouldn't be responsible in front of the community if they stole something at nine years old or even if they commit murder, for heaven forbid. They're not going to be responsible. The parents are responsible. That child may go to some kind of juvenile detention. But after that, when they turn a certain age, they're released because they're adults now. So we have it in our society. Um, we, but society also brings a lot of confusion with, you know, cigarettes. It used to be you could buy those at 18, 17. Now it's 18. I think they just turned it to 21 in Texas. Alcohol uh, was 21. Then when I was coming up, it was 18. Then it went back to 21 after I turned 19. Uh-huh. So confusion. Yeah. Uh, military, with a letter, you used to be able to join the military at 17 years old. You could be issued a rifle and go to the Middle East and shoot somebody, but when you come home, you can't buy beer. Confusion. Yeah. When are you a man? And that, that's one of the things that Holly and I, it really bothered us the way we, our parents did the best they could. But there was something about, we, we looked at it, it's kind of like watching films, you know, at, at football. I, all my metaphors, you're going to forgive me. Sure, sure. But Monday morning, what do you do? You look at the film very critically, you, and you got to listen to the coaches pick you apart, right? So that's what Holly and I did with our life. We, we said, what, what do we love about our parents and, and the way they raised us, and what do we wish we, they had done differently? And we used that as a game plan to go through the scriptures and say, how are we going to change this for ourselves? And, and, and for our children, because we didn't want our children to have to go through what Holly and I went through. You know, the, you know, everybody says, well, sex is great. Well, it's like, it's like Moses said, the passing pleasures of sin, you know, he chose not to, not to partake in the passing pleasures of sin, but, you know, put himself in with the people, his people. So, you know, sex is fun, but sex was, like I said before, was brought about for one man, one woman, uh, biblical marriage. It was brought about to have fun, but it's also brought about to bring children. And so that's what we were honest with our children and said, look, you, you, don't, you don't give your virginity, you don't give your, your, your body to someone you're not married to, just like it, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's another one that hit me right between the eyes in 1990 because that was like, whoa, I'd never heard that before. You yeah. know? So that's what we decided to do. And, uh, and you know, I wish you could interview my children because they've all, all done it. Um, my son Branson, you know, at that altar, was able to raise his fist after that first kiss. And uh, my son Jensen, there was some there were some problems, but we went through as a family. I think they did a peck or something. Or, on, well, I don't know. And the family had a meeting, and we talked about it with him. It was, but it was all the family. It was everybody talking together about choices that were made and forgiveness, and where do we go from here? And yet there was no, uh, you know, oh, you're done. It was his, cast out or yeah it was his decision and and so we as a family decided yeah this is and, and they were married within a few weeks after that so you know we we don't live legalistically at all but we live relationally but we base everything on on what we see in the scriptures is how you're supposed to do this thing and you know i read proverbs 31 over my wife all the time she's a businesswoman she's a mover and a shaker and um you know, we have a blast. We struggle sometimes financially. We struggle as a family. We we communicate. Um, hey, Dad, let's go do this. Well, guys, we can't do that right now. Our cash flow is a little low. We talk about it, but we're very open about it. So we're having a blast. Yeah. Yeah. 
If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Recently, my family has been enjoying Redeem TV. They're a Christian streaming service that's ad-free and fee-free with over a quarter million subscribers spread throughout the world. We love their wide selection of movies, documentaries, and children's programming. And their library of edifying titles is always growing and is sure to have something for you. For your next family movie night, I encourage you to visit RedeemTV.com or download one of their apps to your device or smart TV and start streaming goodness wherever you go. And don't forget, they have no fees and no ads. Get started at RedeemTV.com. That, that is so encouraging just to hear about, you know, your family and fi- family dynamic. And then also just like how God is like the centerpiece of, you know, how y'all do things. I, I really was interested by the ring that you were wearing, actually. I was, I was inter- you know, I was thinking like, that is the most interesting ring. Is that like some kind of special Super Bowl thing I've never seen before, you know? And- no, we actually designed them. There's three points. That's Jesus, mom and dad, and the child. Wow. And then the guys wear them. Some of them wear them around their neck because they do pizzas. Yeah. Yeah. So they're they're, they're always having to take it off. They yeah. lose them. Yeah. And you know, Jensen lost one one time. We went to the beach when it was February, and the ice cold water, his finger shrunk. Yeah. And it came off. Yeah. And I'll never forget the look on his face because he was like, "I lost the ring. I lost my virginity." I was like, "Son, stop, <laughs> man." We 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 huddled up there in the sand. You know, we looked. Uh, we couldn't find it. Of course, it went down. As I don't know, twenty feet down by now. Yeah. But uh. I was able to say, son, the ring is not the thing. The ring is just a symbol of the thing. I said, the thing is in your heart. The thing is in your soul. You know, that's what you're giving to your wife. You're not giving her a piece of gold. Who gives a flip about that? That's, this is just a symbol of that commitment. And so it's like this light bulb went on and it was really good. It was a good family teaching moment. Yeah. But they've, they busted them. They've lost them. They found them, you know, so the guys wear them. Holly wears theirs. So she's got on her right hand, she's got their wives' rings. Mm. So whenever the daughter gets walked down, then sometimes it's not at the ceremony because our culture, the sure. the dad's walking down, all that. So we wait till like um, with um, with um, Jensen, we waited until the little reception party and kind of presented it. I think Peyton was a little bit later because the way that all went down with her family coming in and, but it, it, it's just a, it's just a gift. You know, it's a gift that yeah. our sons can give to, to their wives. Yeah. And so, um, it's just, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the, the two other rings on your other hand. Well, this is my wedding band. 
that I when I married Holly, and then uh, 25th anniversary is Sterling. Oh, oh, okay. So our kids, excuse me, our kids uh, gave us a trip to Mexico, Cancun. Wow. For the anniversary day, and so I went to Cali's Jewelry, which is right next door here, and I had these rings made. And uh, the people we traveled with uh, is some of our best friends, and he's a pastor, uh, Tim Henderson, and his wife Kim. And uh, so we went down there and we had a blast. And then on the morning of our uh, anniversary, I uh, had it all set up where there was this thing on the beach. And Tim, in his bathing suit, put on the, <laughs> put on some kind of like overcoat-looking thing. And Holly and I are standing there in our bathing suits. And she's like, "What's going on?" And Kim walks out with flowers. And we recommitted our oh, our vows. And I put it on. She's crying. I put it on her finger. That is and so, so yeah, that's that's it. So twenty-five years. That's my that's my uh, that's the two Super Bowl rings I care about the most. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> that is so awesome. That is so awesome. Why don't you give us a plug about Brewster's Pizza and the brewery, you know, just as a way for like, you know, in case uh, people are listening. Yeah. yeah, Brewster's Pizza just came about because the, the economy crashed in 2008. And, um, you know, we, we had a steakhouse and a Mexican food place. And the Mexican food place just takes a, the, the amount of labor, you know, it's just a lot of prep. Steakhouse even more. And so we just kind of let those two, we, we rented the Mexican food place out to another couple that, that run it now change the name but they have the same location and then the uh, steakhouse we rented to another restaurant that didn't make it and what we did is we went down to we actually had a third restaurant if you believe that we had a deli and um so we stopped the deli and we said we were traveling up in dallas arlington where i was, went to college and we said um uh, we we're going somewhere and i said there was this place man that had this pizza it was called joey's and these two guys from brooklyn new york so long story short, it was so good. We would travel 100 miles out of our way, and we'd buy like 14 20-inch pizzas. And we would like just eat them for hundreds wow. and hundreds and hundreds of miles. I mean, you know, pizza lasts two or three days without refrigeration. I don't care what they tell you. <laughs> so we, we would do that, and, and we just loved it. So when we said, you know, we talked to him, and we said, hey, will you teach us how? And he, how far away are you? You know, I can't talk it, but Italian. And uh, I was like, I'm 200, 240 miles away. He goes, okay, that's far enough. <laughs> you know, so we'll teach you. So they taught us how to make pizza. And that's how Brewster started, Brewster's Pizza. The name comes from my nickname. Um, and we started it back in 2008, 2009. Uh, and it's just been an adventure with all the children growing up working there. Like I said, Branson met his wife because she worked there. Uh, Jensen. Uh, kind of got his start there and then and then the music stuff and then um we met the drivers for george Strait. uh we were able to go to vegas and go backstage with george Strait oh, because man. of that oh, man. Uh, going to nashville he got to go to nashville and because he went to nashville he met another guy named chris through the willis clan family who we kind of had a relationship with and because he met chris chris knew clara clara met jensen jensen and clara are now married and they're they have their first baby on the way, my oh, second yeah. grandchild. So everything kind of came out of Brewster's, the blessing of having a family restaurant. Um, Brewster's Pizza, it's at uh, um, uh, 9595 Ranch Road 12 in Wimberley. It's just on the south side, about four miles south of the square. And then we had Wimberley Brewing Company because pizza and beer, those are recession-proof. Sure. And so uh, I always wanted to brew beer. You know, I grew up um, drinking beer, but it was always Lone Star and you know, all these other 
you know, we, they call them watery lagers. In, in Europe, they call them watery lagers. So the craft beer was taken off then. And so we got a license. It was actually the seventh uh, active license in Texas. Now there's hundreds. Wow. But we uh, started brewing small batch. Um, we now have 12 beers on tap. I've got a full-time brewer. And we're moving that down here to 13900 Rancho 12, which is right near the square, one block off the square of Wembley. And uh, we open in just a few weeks. And uh, what's it, it going to be called? It's called Wembley Brewing Company. And it's going to be deli sandwich food, pub food. Uh, and like I said, 12 of our beers are going to be on tap. Everything from the lightest of the light Hefeweizens to the darkest of the dark, darkest Ghirardelli, you know, San Francisco chocolate oatmeal stout. Uh, made by my uh, Glennis uh, Aiken is my brewer, and she's just a great girl. So uh, we, we, uh, yeah, we, we got it going on. We're just really happy to be, be finally opening up. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, okay. Uh, another question I wanted to touch base on. So w- when I was reading about your bio, um, there were a couple instances where um, basically – in your earlier um, kind of party lifestyle, there's some instances where like you almost died, basically. Oh, like, God preserve your life. <laughs> Can we just touch base on, on a few of those? Holy moly! Uh, starting off when I was probably 11, 12, my mom and dad there was pretty good arguments going on before they divorced, and uh, <clears throat> there was a guy named Byron Fair. Uh, his dad was an old man. Uh, there's a place called Fair Oaks Ranch subdivision in San Antonio, right off I-10. He, uh, his dad actually developed that. And we ran together. We were kind of buddies. And he lived down the street. And uh, it was, I think it was a little older than me, maybe. Anyway, he had a truck, pickup truck. And uh, his dad said uh, we were going to go to his ranch and go, like, hog hunting or varmint hunting. But his dad said, you guys got to go cut a cord of wood before you can go to the ranch. Well, my little devious mind, I was like, wait a minute. I know an alley that's got some firewood stacked up against the fence. Why don't we just go fill the truck up with that, and then we can go hunting. You're just going to go steal this go wood. Go steal the wood, yeah. Okay. So basically, just shows you how s- smart I am. He's trying to load it in. I'm like, no, 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 dude. Let's just throw it in the back. So we're in the alleyway throwing wood in the back of an empty pickup. You ever heard a bass drum in like a marching band? Oh, yeah. Well, the guy that owned the firewood was a retired police officer. Bad dude, <laughs> Bad guys. dude. Bad move. He comes out, starts yelling. Byron gets in to take off. He's like, cover the license plate. Sit on the tailgate. I'm like, okay. So the tailgate's closed. I sit with one foot in the truck, one foot on the bumper covering the license plate. And the guy starts chasing us and shooting at us. That was the first time. Oh, man. I actually went to juvenile detention for that one. Oh, My man. mom uh, had to come in crying with our lawyer. <laughs> oh, man. And then it went on from there. And there were times when I uh, drunk roller skating, came back from college for a party, with a guy named Wayne Crooks, who now is a pastor, uh, but he was like me, you know, lost in the world at that time. And I uh, dislocated, fractured my ankle, three screws, turned my foot around 180 degrees. Not good for a scholarship when you're playing football at the full scholarship yeah. UTA. Yeah. So I missed my sophomore year red shirt with that. Um, got stabbed in a parking lot. Uh, messing with a guy and his girlfriend uh, shouldn't have been doing that but I thought I was some bad dude uh, which was terrible uh, so that, I got stitches and all the way I don't know about a 10 inch scar 
on my stomach. Stabbed you with a, a knife. S- a knife, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, what else? I got a beer ball in the face in Arlington uh, fighting in a bar where a guy took a full Coors glass and hit me in the face with it. And I got, I don't know how many hundreds of stitches. Uh, but I, I tell about all these stories in my testimony of coming to Christ. As soon as they pulled out the stitches and I realized that I could smile again, I lived like hell. You know, I'd be driving to the hospital with my face open, praying to God. But as soon as they pulled out the stitches, I'm like, live like hell. I got stabbed in the parking lot. I go to the hospital. Oh, God, if you'll just help me with this. I was saying the Lord's Prayer when I was on the gurney. Wow. You know, I thought I was going to die. But as soon as they pull out the stitches, live like hell. Because it was your, your fire insurance. Your basically. fire insurance, you know. just that's, that's what I thought it was. You know, I thought, uh, you know, you just... Once you, if you, all you gotta do is say you're sorry. You know, all you gotta do is get forgiveness. Kind of like confession in a booth. You know, you just go in there and confess, and then you're clean. But the problem was with that is I never bought in. I never, I never, not bought in, but I never realized the life that comes when you get real, and the change, the change that comes where you don't need to do those things anymore. Yeah. Because of Christ and because of His resurrection. You know, He paid for the sin on the cross. And we have new life because of his resurrection. And that's what I bought into. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple lighthearted questions here. Um, do you still keep up with your friends from football? I do. I do. I, you know, I, uh, unfortunately, we just lost uh, two of them. We lost Dwight Clark. Um, there's a memorial coming up. I just mm. got the invitation this morning. Mm. So I'll get to see a lot of the guys August 1st in San Francisco. Um, and then uh, Keith Fonhorst, right tackle. Mm. Uh, we lost him, you know, right after Dwight. Uh, he had a kidney, uh, some kind of cyst disease on his kidneys, uh, and he was like sixty-six, eight or nine years older, ten years older than me. Dwight was sixty-one, um, but you know, I, I got to see the guys at a, a Cal Palace uh, autograph session that we had not too long ago, celebrating Super Bowl twenty-four uh, anniversary. Um, so yeah, it's alumni stuff and every once in a while, you know, at, at restaurants and different places, but uh, Facebook's a good yeah. way to stay in touch a little bit, but, yeah. um, yeah, I'm really sad for Dwight's wife and children and, uh, and Keith's family, you know, so that, that hurts, but you know, we're all gonna, uh, we're all gonna pass. And, yeah. um, I just pray, I know that, uh, I know that Keith really had a change, um, in, in a ministry of his own. And I know Dwight, you know, the love that he had for his family and his wife and, and uh, just good people. So, yeah. Yeah. Have you been able to share the gospel with many of your teammates over the years? I have, you know, it's, it's been really amazing. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, one of our family motto verses that we have is from St. Francis of Assisi. It's preached the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. And, you know, the guys that I played with my first five years, um, they saw the Bruce Colley that was with the strippers, that was beer balls in the face, the, the, the party guy, the guy that, you know, flew strippers to the, the Super Bowl for crying out loud. You know, stupid, crazy, crazy, crazy times. Mm. And then they saw the change. And you can't just blame it on the fact that, you know, the 49ers fired me and sent me to the Eagles because I played at the Eagles and I had a great time. I started. Um, but there was a, a, a severe change. Um, just like you read in the scriptures, you know, Paul 
Saul of Tarsus, and he, he's riding a donkey and gets knocked off the donkey, and all of a sudden, wham, look at the disciples. When, when Jesus was, was arrested, they all scattered like, like rats. Yeah. And yet, you know, what happened? What changed? That's one, of the, that's one of the biggest testimonies to me of the reality of the resurrection is there's no physical, there's no way that you could get that many people to live a lie to their deaths when they they were scattered yeah. and then all of a sudden what what changed what happened it had to be it had to be yeah. and so that's one of the things that that every person you know and you know my my sons and daughters they're not going to have that transitional Paul or Saul of Tarsus experience you know uh, I think of James you know the brother of Jesus you know, I think of the, the different characters and in, in, in the disciples in the Bible and, and those that, that, that walked for the time of Christ. You know, everybody's got their own testimony, but it's the same Jesus. Yeah. You know, it, and what Holly and I say to people, you know, because they'll say to us, well, I grew up in the church and I, I don't have a testimony like that. You know, the same grace and the same Holy Spirit that kept you from the strippers and the and the abortions and all the stuff that happens in the world uh, is the same grace and the same spirit that saved Holly and I out of that. Yeah. And, you know, we raise our children uh, for identity. Uh, we discipline with Rod, but we do it privately. We close the door, we walk in and we pray. And I say, you are my son, you are well pleased, but your choice of behavior was unacceptable. So their identities are secure before the discipline. We pray afterwards, their identities secure after the discipline. So their identity secure and we separate it from their choices. Because a lot of people try to say, well, it's it's the stab that, you know, and the beer bottle in the face and all this stuff that you went through that made you who you are today. And I say, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says my identity came before the choices I made. It's the identity from Christ that got me through the bad choices that I made and brought me to him because God is after you. Yeah. God is passionately coming after you. And so I say to everyone out there who's making poor choices, realize that your identity, God wants to tell you who, who what your identity is. He wants to tell you how much you're loved and that the fact that you were known before the foundation of the world and that he knit you in the womb you know, before you could have done anything, you know, that, that Christ is there and he, he wants you to know that he's got a plan. He wants you to come to him and he wants you to say, all right, it's yours. Lead the way because yeah. the, the wealth, like I said before, Holly and I are very wealthy. We just don't have a whole lot of money and we're wealthy in people. You know, and, and I, I took a, 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 a message from when I went to look for, look for that bus back in the day when I was, you know, saw all those widows and all the people and they waited so long to take those travel. I don't want to be on my deathbed going, wow, look at my portfolio. Look at the Merrill Lynch account. Look at the, I want hundreds of faces. I want 10 grandkids each. I want 130 grandkids <laughs> that'll be stuffing the room around my deathbed. That's what I want. I'm not going to give one flip about the restaurant. I'm not going to give one flip about the money in the bank account, but I am going to see the people that God allowed me to impact their lives for him. That's, that's true wealth and that's true life in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Bruce, thank you so much for just sitting down here and sharing all of this from your heart. I, I know there's a million other things that you could be doing today, uh, but I just appreciate the time you just taking this to share with us from your life, your testimony, how God has worked through your life and through Holly's life and, yeah. and now in your kids' lives. Such an exciting story, and it's like only begun. Amen. So, Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Bruce. Yeah, you bet. All right. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.